Hey, we've had uh, quite a time walking through this series on Tangled, and I think the Lord has done quite a bit more with it than even I would have anticipated. And this morning we're going to talk about parenting. Probably no relationship can get more tangled than the relationship between mom and dad and kids. And uh, it can go sideways from a number of different angles. Two things. We will not be able to hit everything this morning. And second thing, uh, none of this that's laid out this morning is designed as a guilt trip, all right, or to evaluate you as a parent. It's designed to engage that conversation you've been having with the Lord and where that's at. And some parts may really hit for you. Some may not, which is fine. But uh, we want to walk through some things that really get us tangled up as parents this morning. So let's pray before we do that. Father, as we come, thanks for having fun, Lord, and just being able to goof around a little bit. And I think there's going to be a great deal of laughter in your kingdom and a great deal of joy. And that's probably the part I look forward to the best. As we come this morning, Lord, nothing can rob our joy when our core relationships, particularly within the family, go sideways. And uh, we seek you this morning that you would um, engage with us, not just uh, in the conversation you've had in the Word, which uh, has been significant, but also in our personal journeys as you have uh, shepherded us and led us in this uh, process you call sanctification to make us look more like you. Nothing can unglue that more than children. And we seek you that you would help us understand our own wiring this morning. And we give that to you with great hope in your name. Amen. All right. So if you, one of the things about parenting, if you look in the Bible, what is surprising is the lack of information there when it comes to biblical parenting. Uh, most of us would think there's a whole manual in there somewhere. Uh, there really isn't. There are key places that some things are said, and the rest is left up for you to read through Scripture, <clears throat> to incorporate Scripture, and then to pass that along. And it's this piece of the passing along part where it gets all tangled, right? And uh, it doesn't get communicated as clearly as it can or should sometimes. And... Uh, Often, as parents, don't you wish hindsight is... I mean, hindsight's a beautiful thing, right? Have you ever walked through a thing then 20 minutes later went, why didn't I say that? Oh, you know, parenting is like that. So I want to give you two of the beginning places where we'll start this morning. This is found in Deuteronomy. And this is important because this was when Israel was about to go into the land and they were about to uh, take over... And God said there's some very, very important things. And the most important thing is that you stay focused on me. And as you stay focused on me, I will be able to lead you and I'll be able to bless you. And then in this, he talks about passing on. In Deuteronomy 6, it says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. In other words, it's a living word. We are, a lot of us are reading through the Bible uh, this year, which is great. And I want to encourage you on that. <clears throat> and um, but it's not just that you read a book. It's that you engage with the, the whole language of the book, and it becomes a living word in your heart to where when you're talking, that stuff just kind of pops up in your conversation with people because um, you're using Scripture from your time spent meditating with the Lord. It said, It'll be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house 
and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. In other words, as you're doing life together, as you're doing life with your children, this is when you pass stuff along. And often for us as parents, it involves listening to our kids before we talk to our kids. Um, We often think that we as the parents uh, have it all together, so we will tell them how to live life, and they will be uh, very encouraged and excited and gracious and say, Oh, Father, thank you for bequeathing your wisdom to me tonight. Most of the time that doesn't really work, does it? But if you sit down and you ask them, Hey, how'd your day go? Asked my son, had you seen Jesus at all, anywhere, today? He goes, nope. And I said, okay. Why not? Why do you think you didn't? He says, I don't know. I probably wasn't looking for him. And we had a good conversation about that, uh, going into blizzard camp, that his job was to befriend this one kid and then to listen for Jesus speaking to him. And after the camp, I asked him, I said, so did you hear anything special for you? He said, nope. I said, that's okay. Matt, I said, uh, it'll happen. It wasn't this retreat, but it'll happen. You need to run into him in a living way. It's not good enough that you're just my son and you're here at the house and you go to Norfolk. You've got to meet him. And so I've been talking to him about that in that process. The other famous uh, verse, of course, is this found in Proverbs. Train up the child the way he should go, and even when he's old, he will not depart from that. Right and and many of us go, ah oh, man, come on. I've been I've been that's a I've been conned. I, I I went to church and I did those things and my kids aren't following or they aren't walking, they aren't tracking. Well, one of the things that we learn as parents is patience. And we think, okay, my job is for eighteen years and then they're on their own and I don't get involved. And I found some of the most profound parenting is after they turn eighteen. Here's a surprising thing if you've got young kids. You think when they're older, you'll get rid of them? I have news for you. They come back. Okay? Parenting isn't done just because they turn 18. This is a lifelong pattern. And notice it says, train the child in the way he should go. Even when he's old, he will not depart from him. One of the questions we'll ask this morning is, well, how do you do that? How do you train a child in the way he should go? We'll, we'll take a look. But I want to go to uh, Ephesians and show you a verse This one, it's talking to dads. It says, fathers, do not. And the word here in the English Standard Version is provoke your children to what? Anger. We have as dads a capacity somehow to provoke something in our children that isn't, uh, God doesn't speak to it as much about wives. Talks mostly to dads. Dads, do not provoke your children to anger. In other words, don't prod them but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. If you look in the NIV, uh, it says, fathers do not, and what's the word there? Exasperate. Okay? Have you ever exasperated your children? Right? Where they just, all right, fine, whatever. Okay? And, and they're just wiped out by that. In other words, this tells us something uh, that we bring into, we've been talking about, the issues of unresolved anger and how they pile into our marriage relationship. But here's the other part. Unresolved anger also piles into our parenting. And nowhere does that kick up more than when there is pressure or crisis. Because under crisis, remember, we go back to what we learned. And we learn crisis from who? Our parents. If they were there. 
right? Who did they learn crisis from? Their parents. And so there's this process here where we may be bringing more into the equation than we realize. In Ephesians chapter 6 also it says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and you may live long in the land. We like that one. Obey. Yes. God got it right finally. Okay? But the question is, uh, how are we leading? Are they able to obey? I want to take you back to the 80s. All right? Some of you will remember that. There are some patterns or styles of parenting that um, I want to take a look at this morning, and I wanted Margaret to update, and we couldn't find anything to update it with, so we have some 80s pictures here, right? So waltz with me back to the 80s. Here are some styles of marriage, all right, that um, we're going to work with. This is, of course, the male dominant. I'm the man. I am the ruler of the house. This is my castle, and you are my serfs, and you will all obey, right? And it's a heavy-handed, um, you will do it because I said so uh, type of parenting. This, uh, as you can tell already, just looking at the guy, there's anger involved, right? And uh, a, a lot of this really has to do, I have found with guys who operate this way, there's tremendous insecurities inside. And they cover it up with a show of bravado and strength. But what they really sell is anger. And the children and wife will bow, but are they happy about it? Mm -mm. What's the spirit of a home like this? It's It's not a friendly place to be. Now the flip side of that, because of the fall, is you can go this route. All right? Female dominant. You've often heard the phrase, she wears the pants in the family. And uh, set it up in such a way that everybody orchestrates around her leadership, around her style, around uh, her insecurities and fears. And often what I find for a woman is that fear is what drives this. And they feel like they have to do that because if they don't, nothing will ever get done. Because obviously men are incompetent and couldn't lead even if Jesus was helping them. So they need to help the universal structure out and make sure Jesus got it right by their leading. Okay. Next style that comes into parenting is this one. This is what you call conflicted. Right? They just fight. They just duke it out. Everything becomes a contest, whether big or small. And uh, right kind of thing, and uh, it becomes a battlefield where you engage in warfare together. Now, for most of us, this is sporadic, right? Every once in a while, we hear the gunfire going off and go, ah, and going so well over there at the Mitchell's house, is it? All right, but it isn't all the time. But there are some, and I bet you, if you thought through the couples, you know, there are some that live this way consistently. Uh, Their home is conflicted. Um, As people come down the stairs or come into a room, um, they just bark and spit and fight, and it it becomes um, strained would be the best word uh, in this. And then 
in this, usually, almost always, it's never totally equal. One of the partners has an edge somehow or is dominant in some way, and so it usually rolls into one of these next two where you have uh, conflicted and then the male comes out on top, or this one where you have conflicted and then the female comes on top. What that means is this. Almost always in any relationship, one person is more willing to jack up the emotional level. So if you go from, say, 0 to 10, 0 being everything's cool, you know, peace, to 10 where it's an all-out brawl and fight, usually when you start out, it'll amp at 2 or 4 or 5, and there's that critical space in the discussion. We'll call it a discussion. Right, John? Discussion. In the discussion where one person says, all right, we're at the make or break point. This, this thing is going to go one way or the other. So I'm willing to push it up to five and a half. Are you willing to call me on that? What that means in poker terms is either you come up and you call the bluff or you say, well, you in five and a half, I'll go six. Because I'm in control of this. Well, you're willing to go six. I'm willing to go six and a quarter. I'll go six and a half. All right, fine. I go seven. All right, and right at that point, what happens is it's a make or break point because the person who's at the, still at the six and a quarter is looking at the seven and going, you know what? We can go there, but if we go there, it's going to be a blowout damage kind of thing and we probably won't recover for weeks. And the question is, do I want to win that bad or for the sake of what's going on in the family, do I just concede the point? And so usually at that point, they will not ratchet it up because they know the effects will be too destructive. And so they concede the point. Does that mean the argument's over? Just because the person has conceded the point. Boy, you're a lively group this morning. We went from all out worship to this. This is fun. Does that mean that's over? No. What's going on? Residual anger. We stuff it. But does that mean that the conversation is over. No. No. Right? Some of us don't like conflict at all, and so then we run into this mode. We just get busy. It's just easier to be busy. If I'm busy, I don't have to interact with you. If I'm busy, I don't have to get intimate with you. I don't have to share what I'm feeling. How'd your day go? Good. I'm busy. I gotta run. Okay, see ya. Yeah, I have to run too. And we start marking our time Measuring it by, can I get away from them? Can I just get some peace? Some of us go to the store just so we can get a break. We're not really even shopping at the store. We're sitting in the car going, I can breathe again. Okay, and we marshal our efforts back up. Okay, then I'll head back home. What am I going to walk into? Does this happen for Christian couples? Yes, it does. Right? These patterns, these styles, what's built into all of these what's built into all of these is a conflicted style of relating i'd rather be right than right with you there's a lack of team there's a lack of corresponding language there's a lack of what we uh what pam and i call code words you know, we have certain code words that tip us off that okay it's going one uh, one of ours is do you smell smoke Right? And what we mean by that, in the midst of our argument, are you sensing warfare in this? And we never like that because then it's like, oh, stupid warfare. Because 
after you watch for it, you'll realize there's the enemies everywhere. There's warfare everywhere. And almost every weekend for Pam and I, we can pick up that warfare is happening. Starts about Friday morning, moving into the afternoon, right, honey? And almost always one of us will bark or get squirrely or something. And, and then we say, well, you smell smoke. I don't care about the stupid smoke. Okay? Because we're just, fr- oh, now we got to pray again. Oh, my gosh. This is, you know. That doesn't happen to you guys? Okay, well, it happens in our house. (laughs) What's the uh, biblical pattern? The biblical pattern is mutual submission. I can trust Pam as she submits to Christ, and she can trust me as I submit to Christ. And I can pray for Pam that she'd submit more, and she can do the same for me. In other words, under Jesus' leadership, we both become very safe. I will tell you a secret about Pam and I. Outside of Jesus' leadership, neither one of us are very safe. She grew up in a very matriarchal family. I grew up in a very patriarchal family. That's a beautiful mix, all right, when you get married. I'm the oldest of eight. She's the youngest of two. Okay? I grew up on a farm. She grew up in the city. Okay? She has class. I have none. <laughs> I walked in today. Her and John Thomas, Steve, if you're wearing your jersey, you've got to pull it out. You can't tuck it in your pants. Oh, okay. <laughs> like I knew that. Yeah. There we go. And left to ourselves, we can be highly conflicted. And what we have learned in our almost 20 years, we're 20 years this July, which is like I'm still, Pam and I are still 15 years behind the rest of you our age. That's, you know. But what we've learned is unless we submit that stuff to the Lord on a daily, sometimes hourly, sometimes minute-by-minute basis, it doesn't work. And what we've come to learn is some some invaluable things. I want to share some things with you in terms of um, this unresolved anger. And uh, there is a generational train coming down the tracks, right? And it's, it's running at all of us. And if you haven't figured it out, and you are over 40, you aren't watching. You aren't looking for it because it's there. But the impact of people and other people in our lives sets this up. This is found in Exodus. For I, the Lord, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity. The iniquity there, that word is a word that means my bent to go my own way. Another way you could describe it is stiff-necked or stubborn. Okay, God says, I'll visit the iniquity or the stiff-necked or the stubbornness or the going their own way of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those that hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. In other words, the breaking of the generational curse really has to do with lordship. It is not about just going to church. It is about whether Jesus Christ is our Lord and whether we take our orders from him or whether he takes our orders from us. Uh, in America, there's a lot of the rub the genie, I hope God gives me a million dollars kind of faith. That, that faith doesn't cut it when you're parenting. That faith doesn't cut in marriage because it really comes down to surrender. And most of us, when it comes to surrender and we look at our mates, go, will you submit to them? No, will not. Now, we don't do that outwardly because that would be very unchristian. So we go, oh, sure. <laughs> okay. But if I ask you, would you submit to the Lord? Well, that's a question too, isn't it? 
And what we find is we profess much faith and we profess much trust. But the truth is we trust very little. And part of what marriage is designed to do and part of what parent, if marriage doesn't get the process rolling, parenting will. It's designed to root out the selfishness and the self-centeredness in us and get us to submit to the Lordship of Christ. It's to show us the need for that. And so, will I submit to Christ? The answer is, yeah, I would. All right, if you submit to me, will you trust me to work with your partner? Yes, I would. And in that becomes a fabulous place where Pam and I have found enormous life because we found that with each other, we're not that safe, but in Jesus, we're very safe. And we found that we have had to go to the Lord a lot in our parenting. Here's a funny thing is that there's no real manual written. You can read a lot of books on it, but the problem is kids don't fit stereotypes, right? And there isn't a book for, hey, if you have twins, here's how you raise twins, okay? And if you have girls, here's how you raise girls, you have boys. Now there's books on it, but kids are amazing because there's always one who knows how to pull your trigger. Right? There's always one who knows exactly how you're wired. And here's why you've got to submit it to Christ, because here's the thing. We have certain skills we use in parenting that we pick up. And if we don't submit that to Christ and we don't give that to the Lord, then what happens is your kids will learn your stuff. And by the time they're a teenager, they will bury you with it. Right? That's not coming from the head pastor. That's coming from Steve Mitchell's 18 and a half years in youth work. If you don't get the submission thing with Jesus right, they will take your stuff when they're teenagers and they'll bury you with it. You go, how is that possible? Let, let me show you how that's possible. Here we go. So if that train's coming down the tracks, one of the things that's really important, you better know what's on your train. What is it that's getting handed down generationally? What were your parents like? What were their weaknesses and strengths? What were your grandparents like? What were their weaknesses and strengths? You may have to go and ask some of your family members, to find some of this stuff out. But trust me, it's chasing you whether you know it is or not. You need to find this out. And so here's uh, my principles for parenting. All right? Uh, I gave this when I came as a guest speaker to Northview in May of 204. So some of you might have a memory of this, Jen Savage and Greg Savage. <laughs> I'm looking at you. All right? And... Uh, let me walk through this. Here's, here's my principles for parenting. Number one, you cannot give away what you do not have. All right? Doesn't that make sense? If you don't know it, if you, like, for example, if you want to give away godly wisdom and you've never read the Bible, you've got nothing to give. You may have heard somebody say something clever once and you can pass that on, but you can't give away what you don't have. And so parenting is the ultimate motivation to get going in terms of um, the Bible and in terms of um, having something to bring to the table. Secondly, you can't teach others what you don't know. If you don't have it, you can't teach it to them. And you can try to teach them stuff, but it comes across, doesn't ring true. Your kids will pick it up. You can't teach others what you don't know. So, for example, some of you are reading through the Bible this year for the first time. That's why that's such a fantastic thing. Because you can say, hey, you know, I don't know totally for sure, but I just read this last week. Whoa, that's in there, Dad? Yeah, it is. Well, I didn't know that. You know what? Neither did I till last week. But that's pretty exciting. I'm going to keep reading. 
Number three, you can't take others where you haven't been. Now, you can tell them about it, but you can't take them there. And you can't take your kids where you haven't been spiritually. This means primarily it's not your kids who need to be spiritually stretched in church. Who is it that needs to be spiritually stretched? Us. That is, by the way, why you as a family should plan on going on a missions trip. We're doing a a missions trip this uh, summer. Brooks is going to take a gang down to Nicaragua. and uh, It's a very scary, dangerous kind of setup. They're going to see his parents. (laughs) But it will get them out of their Mill Creek bubble, which is good. But here's the problem. The kids will have an enormous experience. Who won't? Mom and dad. And so the kids will come back talking about faith and how they've seen the Lord. And mom and dad will go, well, that's awesome. What are your grades like? No, no, no. We need to be stretched. We need to be stretched. Part of parenting is, Lord, how do you want to stretch us as a family so that kids get living testimonies? A lot of times we don't want that. Trials come in. By the way, if you don't go anywhere, God's got a great answer for that. It's called life, right? And he creates dilemmas. You look very blank, like you've never been in a dilemma before, all right? And God creates dilemmas, and what he does with these dilemmas is what? How are we going to handle that? Oh my goodness, the car broke down, the washing machine went out, and this bill came in that we haven't paid. Ah! Right? And your kids are going to watch how you do that. And part of that is developing faith stories of how you've seen the Lord come through with your family. Well, if you don't see the Lord in those things, and you aren't even praying about it, you'll never have a story to tell. On the other hand, we have uh, worked with our kids. They know the story very well of how God brought Pam and I together. If you ever want to ask them, just ask them, how'd your mom and dad get together? They'll tell you the story in more technicolor than even I can dredge up. If you ask our kids, how did we get to our house here in Mill Creek? They know the faith story. They know how we came because it wasn't all a done deal. And we sat down with them and said, hey, look, this is going to be a big step. This is going to have a huge impact on mom and dad. But guess what? This is going to have a huge impact on you. Are you in this? Are you with us on this? They said, yes, we are. And so we have a faith story of how we moved to Mill Creek. It's as they watch you. I'll never forget my friend Bob Wright, who's a beloved buddy. He's the chairman at North Shore Baptist in Bothell. And uh, he's also the chairman of the Norton Foundation, which is all the warehouser money. But he was the head of Arthur Anderson, one of the vice presidents. And Arthur Anderson, of course, went through that famous crash. And he knew they were going to crash. He told the presidents of the company what they had to do, and they didn't do it. So he sat down with his children and said, look, this is going to go very badly. So what I want you to do is watch my life and see if I act any different under pressure than I did when times were good. And after they went through the whole thing, and it's a phenomenal story, he sat down with his children again and said, how did I do going through? They said, Dad, you were phenomenal. And that taught his children lessons that are way more than anything he could have ever spoke. You can't take others where you haven't been. Number four, you can't lead if you're not following yourself. We often want our kids to follow Jesus, but the only way they're going to really pick up how they follow is if they see us following. And it's really hard to lead them in following if you're not following yourself. Right? And then the last one, here's the scariest. So 
if none of these got you, the last one's the scariest one, right? If all of these blew you up, you're not going to like this one at all. Here's the last one. You reproduce who or what you are. You're producing something. You're turning something out. You will reproduce who or what you are. And guess what? Far more is caught than taught. They will hear what you are living far more than what you're saying. They will know your spirit far better even if you tell them that's not your spirit. They will know if you're following Jesus whether you tell them they are or not. Because in essence, what God knows is that we reproduce who or what we are. And in that, we pray for mercy. All right, so here's some top five for parenting, right? You guys are way too dead. I've killed the whole Super Bowl for you, so here we go. Let me give you some, some positives here, all right? Top five for parenting. I, as I went, I had the privilege to be a youth guy for 18 and a half years. It was a wonderful run, and I look back, I distilled some things out. So here's the f- top five things I distilled out from parenting. Number one. Always keep your love for God higher than your love for your spouse. All right? If you put your spouse above God, that's called idolatry. Always keep your love for your spouse higher than your love for your kids. I tell my children, they say, get a room. I said, I have one. This is mine. I paid for it. You go get a room. Okay? I remind you, you moved in with me. I did not move in with you. And that's my wife. Ugh, Dad, you're gross. And then they smile and scoot off somewhere, okay? Always keep your love for your kids higher than your love for stuff, okay? Go over that again. Always keep your love for God higher than your love for your spouse. Always keep your love for your spouse higher than your love for your kids. Always keep your love for your kids higher than your love for stuff. Love your kids. Love them passionately. Stuff comes and goes. 90% of it we don't need but you can't replace your kids. And you got one shot. You can get different golf clubs. You can't get different kids. Okay? You got to love them passionately. Number two. If they split, if they can split you, they can beat you. Johnny goes to mom and says, Mom, can I go to the store and get some candy? Go ask your father. Dad, can I go to the store and get some candy? Well, what did your mom say? Well, she said I had to come and ask you. Oh, Okay, you can go. Mom comes, where's Johnny? Well, what do you mean, where's Johnny? Well, what? Why? What? Well, I didn't know. He's at the store. Well, I told you not to. I didn't know he wasn't supposed to go. Right? They're fighting. Where's Johnny? He's at the store stuffing his pockets with what? Candy. Okay? They know where the cracks are. They know where it's hard, and they know where to flick it. Okay? And when they become teenagers, they become masters of working the cracks. You did it when you were a teenager? Don't assume your kids are going to be any different. And if they can split you, they can beat you. One of the most profound things we need to learn to say to each other is just hang on a second. That sounds like a good idea. Let me go check with mom. Our son, Matt, is great at this. Sitting right in the car. Mom, can I go overnight by Bryson's? No. Well, why? Because we've got school, we're doing this, Get out of the car. Here's Pam. Here's Matt. Me coming out the car. Dad, can I go over to Bryson's? You, your mom was just right there, and she said no. Why are you asking me? Right? They're good at it. I mean, Matt's a good kid, but they know how to do that. 
And so you can't let them split you. By the way, some of these things you may not have the answer and you, you're going to need to pray over it. Right? Number three. Oh, wait, I got some more here. Principle number one. Here's, the, here's one of the things we've got to learn as parents. This is an axiom and it's really true. The one who loves the most has the least power. Who loves more, the parents or the kids? The parents, right? Therefore, by definition, who has the least power? The parents. Because, see, you're the parents and you love God. You have to play by the rules. They're teenagers. They don't, okay? They can work another deal. And so, therefore, uh, you've got to be careful when they're trying to split you. Secondly, they need to have walls that they can push against. You are precisely their parents because you're their parents, and that's why God designed it. They're supposed to be kids. They're supposed to be teenagers. We're supposed to be able to stand there. They're supposed to run against us and fall down and go, oh, that did not give. I guess there's a boundary there. Okay. They did a study of a daycare center where they, uh, it was a kind of a you know, courtyard thing, and they had the kids go out and play, and they were running around, they had the ball and stuff, and they, when the kids went back in, they took the fence down. All right? And they wanted to see what the kids would do because the fear is always right. The kids will run out on the road and get killed. So they took the fence away. Recess came. They let the kids out. You know what the kids did? They went and huddled in the middle of the play area because the boundaries weren't there anymore. There was nothing they could bounce against that told them this was the play area and you can bounce against them and come back off. And sometimes we, we want to be their friends instead of their parents. Bad move. You are their parents first, their friends second. Understand this. You are their parents. Sometimes you have to say no. And you are not being their friend by just being their buddy and saying yes. You've got to say no. Do we like that conflict? Oh, can they work it? Yes. Do you like the angst you feel? No. Guess what? You have to say no anyway. With grace, with class, in the Holy Spirit, you still have to say no. And a lot of us don't like the conflict, so we're trying to avoid conflict. You know what? Your parents really love you when they say no. And I've got something news for you as well. God really loves us when he tells us no. Have you noticed God doesn't quit being God and he tells you no and you can whine all you want and it really doesn't matter because he said, i sorry, but I said no. Oh, he's never said no to any of you? I'm the only one? Gee. All right. Number three. Flex and roll. If you get rigid, you break. You've got to have some flex. If you've got just this all or nothing, black or white, on, off, 100% kind of mentality, wow, kids will wear you out. They will just wear you out. You've got to learn to flex. And you've got to learn uh, to adjust to the terrain of your children. Is that a good way to put it? Fruit of the Spirit, truth in love, stay alert, watch your children, study them, ask them questions, listen. By the way, one of the best times in the world to do this is at bedtime. How'd your day go? And it's amazing, they will start talking, and you might, as a parent, here's the biggest mistake we make, we want to ask them a question, we want them to give us an answer, we want to pray with them, good night, and now we can go away. And then they start talking. Okay? And what's our biggest problem? Impatience. Okay, that was good. Thank you. And I got to go. No, stop. Listen. 
They will tell you things that you need to know if you're alert and listening. If you sit there, if you just blow it off, you'll miss because they really wanted to tell you something. And I got news for you. Half the time, it's 10 minutes into the conversation that the real stuff comes out. It's not at the beginning. And by the way, Dad, I was thinking about this. Really? Oh. Well, we'll have to talk about that tomorrow then. Important. Know what hill to die on. All hills are not equal. All battles are not the same. And what uh, human nature is good at, especially children, is ramping up several false battles to wear you out. So when the real battle comes, you just concede. Okay? Moms, you know how this works, right? Mom, can I? 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 No. Okay. Mom, can I? Mom, can I? Mom, can I? Right? Ah! Right? You got to know what hills to die on. There's only certain ones you should really die on. The other ones, you let it roll. Okay? No, don't, I'm not engaging with that. Here we go. Okay, you can have that. Okay, you can do that. No, you can't do that. On this one, now it's no. Okay? I'll die on this hill. I remember one time when Abby was a little girl, and uh, I come home from a board meeting late at night, Pam's weeping, and I see this little head poke out. I go, what happened? I can't get her to bed. So I go in. Here's Abby. I said, hey, Abby. This is when she was this size, right? Human dynamo pocket. Ever ready bunny. I said, Abby, you had fun wearing your mama, didn't you? I said, okay, so here's the deal. That's my wife. And my wife is in the living room crying. And so if I have to choose between her and you, I choose her. So if you get out of bed again, you get one spank. If you get out of bed two, if you get bed three, right? We'll just keep going. And you need to know this. This is, Dad, the youth pastor speaking to you. I will bury you, okay? So if you want to rock this thing, let's rock this thing because I ain't mom. Let's roll. She goes, oh, Dad, rolled over and fell asleep. <laughs> Which really made Pam even, she's asleep. Oh, just, right? Yeah. Know what hill to die on. Okay, number four. More importantly, don't ask them to do anything you're not willing to do, especially spiritually. Let me roll this out a little bit for you here. Um, far more is caught than taught. And uh, don't demand greater spirituality from your children than you have yourself. I remember at North Shore when I was doing youth work and parents would come, you need to do studies and you need to get them in the word and you need to be pushing this and they should be reading so many chapters they didn't at first when i first started i was really intimidated i'm thinking oh wow if i was a good youth i'd better do that after a while i sat around and i learned to ask a question they would come in and they would do that and i would look i said you know what i appreciate that can i ask you a question they would say yes are you doing that yourself why are you demanding that of your kid if you weren't willing to do that yourself and a lot of it was fear, and a lot of it was insecurity, and a lot of it was, well, I didn't come out of that background. I want it better for them. I said, okay, the way you get it better for them is if you do it yourself. Don't ask for a spirituality out of them that you aren't willing to do yourself. It's absolute hypocrisy. And they know it. They can smell it 50 miles away. Your kids know. I come in the morning, and we make breakfast, and I sit down on a couch. I have a certain spot with a lamp, turn it on, and I'm reading. And I don't tell my kids, hey, you have to read the word. I don't jam that down their throat because they're pastor kids. They get enough of that. 
but they see me reading there every morning. And I figure that they'll catch that because they know Dad did that. They see their mom doing it. They come out in the thing. My wife is a treadmill maniac or an elliptical maniac, and she's out there with her Bible. So they catch Dad in the living room, Mom on the elliptical, and they get it. We're reading, and we spend time with God. We've never once told our kids they have to do that. We've always painted it as they get to. And that's a big part of the Christian life is painting it as they get to. You are their greatest object lesson. Remember your kid in object lessons, right? Sunday school? You are their greatest object lesson. Your influence on your children is a hundred times more powerful. They've done studies on this. A hundred times more powerful than me, than Brooks, than Wilson, than their peer leaders, than their teachers at school. The number one influence in their life is you as mom and dad. You are their number one object lesson. And so my encouragement is be a good one. Be a good one. You got flaws? So do I. Which means you should pray more for our church. You have flaws? So do I. But I am my kid's object lesson. For good, better, bad, or worse, so is Pam. And together, what we lead them in is what they will become. Number five, hang in there for the long haul. I tell parents when they have 15-year-olds, it's going to get a lot better. It is? Really? (laughs) Yeah. When? Well, when they're about 23. Oh! Yeah, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. It's just a long tunnel. Okay? And primarily, you're going to have to learn to suffer. You're going to need to learn endurance. You're going to need to learn patience. You're going to need to learn perseverance. Perseverance means the ability to hang in there under pressure. And nothing can create pressure like children. And it's not going to change in a day. Dear God, transform them. Any of you notice that? It's a long haul. It's a marathon. It is not a sprint. And so as parents, we've got to learn to what? Grow up. We've got to learn to grow up. We've got to learn to become the genuine article and all those little persnickety things in us where we know we should change, but we don't want to. This is great motivation to learn to do it in the long haul with the Lord to hang, to hang in there. So that means greater grace. We need greater grace. We need God to work in our lives in a greater way. We need a greater grace. You needed a certain grace when you were a single person. You needed another greater grace when you got married. You need a greater grace when you're a parent. Okay? And God is willing to provide that grace all along the journey if we ask Him for it. Secondly, if you're parenting, great friends. Pick your friends for your kids wisely. Pick who you hang out with wisely. Hang out with people that you want your kids to be like. Have great friends. Because those friends become spiritual aunts and uncles who can speak a word into their life that you can never say. And you're going to need them. When they become teenagers and when they become young adults, they're going to need Uncle Ben and Aunt Sally to come and say, hey, you've been really kind of hard on your mom and dad. Have you ever thought about this? And they can say something that you can't say. By the way, that's a great advantage of a church. Got all kinds of spiritual aunts and uncles and grandparents in there together. And then lastly, great causes. Get wrapped up in a great cause. Do something together as a family that's bigger than you. Get involved in something and find a great cause. Missions, trips, something for the kingdom and get wrapped up in it because your kids will learn 
the scent of that trail and they will follow it all their life. All right, we've gone long. Here's the deal. Moms and dads, I have said to you and I've been encouraging you, the number one thing that you need to do as a couple is pray together. Why? Because when you pray together, your love for each other grows. And here's the thing. When you pray together, the greatest illustration or um, object lesson or example that you can give your children is of you loving each other well. I delight in nothing more than embarrassing my children by loving on Pam. Okay? And we do this in all kinds of fun ways. We have a kitchen with a pantry, and Pam goes in the pantry, I'll go in the pantry, close the door, and we'll make funny noises, and they're all, right? And it's just fun because Pam and I are sitting there smirking because we're not doing anything, but they think we are. It's great fun. Right? I want them to know I'm in love with their mom. I want them to know what a good husband looks like. I want my daughters to see what a good wife looks like and what it looks like to love a dad. And that is something that is really, really important for us. The number one thing you can do as an example is love each other well. And the only way I know that is if you pray together. Have you heard me for the last nine months? You thought I'd get away from that, did you? I'm not. I'm not. The statistics are 80% of all Christian couples don't pray together. It doesn't mean they don't pray. It means they don't pray together. I am done with that. I will quit harping on it when 80% of us are praying together. Okay? We get that? I'll go on to another topic. But till then, it keeps rolling around. All right, we got to close. We went long. Let's pray. Father, as we've walked through this, I don't know what will be the target. I don't know what will stick. I don't know what's um, important for my friends here this morning. I do know this, though. This stuff is true, and, and it has gained a lot of mileage in a lot of people's lives, and it's the best of what you distilled to me over the youth years and also in uh, becoming a head guy, and I give it with the hope that it connects with the conversation you're having. And uh, we lift that up to you for your sake and your kingdom. Amen.